Welcome to Latinos Who Tech. My name is Hugo Castellanos. I'm an engineer and I work in Silicon Valley. I am originally from Caracas, Venezuela, and I've been calling the U.S. home for the last 20 years. When it comes to Latinos in the U.S., we are 60 million people, but we're only 3% of the workers in science or engineering. As a professional in Silicon Valley, I've had the opportunity to meet some remarkable professionals that work in the tech industry, Latinos like me. With this podcast, I want to bring you a collection of their stories and how they got a job in tech in the first place. And if they had to start all over again, what would they do differently? I want to share with you career advice on how to get a job in tech, how to deal with imposter syndrome, how to find your tribe when you're the only one in the room. This is Latinos Who Tech. This episode of Latinos Who Tech is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the world's premium platform for audiobooks with over 150,000 titles. If you're like me, you're passionate about learning new things, but finding the time to read may be difficult. Audiobooks are a great alternative. You can get a free 30-day trial plus a free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash latinos. Go and support them since they support us. Thank you. Jimmy Galvez, welcome to Conexiones. Thank you for having me. Do you say Galvez or Galvez? Galvez. What do white people say? Both. Or they'll say Galvan. <laughs> Some variation. <laughs> I think that's part of the reality of having a Latino last name in the U.S. True. But we, as good Latinos, we adapt and overcome. Of course, more recently, my, my boss started calling me Jimmy G., after the 49ers quarterback, mm. which unfortunately he got hurt last weekend. So, Well, hopefully nothing happens nothing while you're happens. here in the Bay Area. Exactly. And thank you for coming all the way from L.A. Oh, thank you. No, thank you for having me. It's happy great to, to be here. You. Happy to have you. And tonight we're doing a couple of firsts. So you're the first civil engineer that we have in the podcast, and you're the first Guatemalan that we have in the podcast. So, you know, setting the bar high. <laughs> thank you. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. <laughs> no, but thank you for having me. I think it's this is great what you're doing. I tell people that I get very inspired by wherever I go. I meet some very cool people that are doing great things for their communities. And the community can be just their initial zone of influence, right? This town or city where they live or the zone of influence of this podcast that can reach thousands, millions of people that can download this and learn more about what others are working on. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you it's for very that. inspirational. And uh, be, before we dig in into your background and your job and what you do every day, can you tell me your story? If you have to tell your story in five minutes, you know, your pitch, who's Jamie, where does he come from? What would you say? I would say that uh, I was originally born in Guatemala, like we said earlier, at the age of five. I remember it being a dramatic experience because at the age of five was when my dad decided to come to the U.S. by himself. The plan was for him to come back. He never came back. Instead, he said at the age of 10, guys, it's time for you guys to come here to me. And so he myself, my brother, my two sisters and my mom, we all came. Uh, we came to live in Los Angeles. That's where he was living. And just remember growing up in the city of Los Angeles from the age of 10. I went to fifth grade. I went to junior high, high school. 
And, you know, they tell you the story that if you work hard, you can do anything. And I was inspired by a lot of people that helped me along the way. Unfortunately, we were in the process of addressing our immigration status and going mm-hmm. through the process. We had submitted applications and waiting and waiting and waiting. But long story short, I was graduating from high school as the top-ranked Hispanic in GPA-wise. I can remember it was number two and number three in the entire class. And even though I got accepted to UCLA, I got accepted to um, a couple of other schools, I could not go to college because I could not apply for financial aid. I didn't have my immigration paperwork in order. And so I ended up going to a community college, Santa Monica College to be exact. And I was there taking my general education as my immigration paperwork went, continued to go through the process. And eventually all that stuff fell into place. It just so happened that my green card came in in the same year that I was ready to transfer out. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Yeah. But I think I think what was very cool, many of the things that just kind of highlight in those years, it was very stressful because there was that anti-immigrant environment in the 90s. I remember Prop 187 mm-hmm. here in California, right? It was a very stressful time growing up and going to school there. But I had some people helping me along the way. Do you remember one of them in particular that yeah, absolutely. comes to mind? Yeah, she was my college counselor, college career counselor in high school. She told my story to somebody, that somebody was a parent in the high school PTA, that parent in the high school PTA knew somebody at NBC Channel 4 in Los Angeles. They decided to run a story on my situation. And through the California Community Foundation, after running my story to all of LA, they raised somewhere around $2,000. And $2,000 in 1987 money, it was a good chunk of money. And they're like, this is for you to uh, pay for your books and initial registration at the community college. Fast forward three years later, that same college counselor switched jobs from the high school to the college I was going to. And she found that I was there and and she knew my story. And so we kept in touch. I, you know, I told her about my green card coming in and that I had been accepted to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And she said, that is awesome. And she says, when are you leaving? It's like, oh, I'm just here until the, the end of the spring semester. One or two weeks before you leave, come and see me in my office. And I did, right? One or two weeks Sure enough, I go to her office and I said, hey, thank you for everything. Yeah, it made such a difference. And she hands over to me an envelope and she says, don't open it right now. It's like, but just a little help. And uh, honestly, I don't remember the exact amount. But I remember getting home and it was something, I want to say something around $400, $500 that was coming out of her pocket. And she said, this should help you get some books. So, you know, when I wow. say that people have looked out for me along the way, it's happened to me time and time again. And this is the reason why I'm so adamant about giving back, paying forward what I've received and helping as many people as possible, because I am so thankful for the help I received along the way. It's a beautiful story. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So sounds like it's part hard work. It's part being in the right place, the right time. It's part being connected and having those mentors around you. So what made you go from that community college you were to Cal Poly? I'm curious, do you have any connection there? Do you have friends there? It's funny because growing up in LA, I thought, I want to go to UCLA or UC Berkeley has a great program. I would like to go there. And, and I remember me cramming as many classes as possible. And one summer quarter was taking my calculus they call it calculus three and four at the community college and it was with the same professor so imagine it was a compacted summer Mm. term so imagine being with the same professor taking two calculus classes from eight in the morning until like two o'clock 
I remember at some point he just kept talking about his son and daughter. You know, we had some great schools in California. In, in my world, I had never heard of Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. In talking about his son and daughter, he would say, it's like, I have two kids, a really smart daughter, and a not-so-smart son. <laughs> this is a professor in front of the class, by yes, the way. Yes, yes. Okay. And he says... Oh, well, the only reason I, I call him that way is because my really smart daughter went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and my son went to UC Berkeley. <laughs> I really like Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. That's how I'm like, well, let me let me go check out Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Let me see. Let me read what's more about them. I went to visit it. I did some reading on their program and like, this is a place where I would like to go. And so that's how I ended up going after the Cal Poly admission process. So what do you study at Cal Poly? All my life, I've been interested in civil engineering and structural engineering. And so, you know, when you get to school, there's a number of things that you can focus on. And, but I kept thinking that I wanted to focus on bridge design and a lot of mass transportation systems. We surely need those, especially here in the Bay Area. <laughs> BART, BTA, those large mass systems that at that time I was thinking, we need more of those, right? And this is back in like 2000 to 2004 when I went to school there that, making a long story short, thought of combining structural with mass transportation. And so I took classes in transportation modeling, freeway design, airport pavements, structural analysis, all those number of courses. So trying to combine both those fields. So you got your degree in civil engineering? Yeah. And so not a lot of schools have a degree in structural, mm -hmm. or at least at the time. And so my degree was a bachelor's of science in civil engineering. What's the difference? Because again, and I'm talking in full disclosure, I'm an electronics engineer. And I also have a minor in cultural anthropology. You know, I'm definitely out there. I'm a weird engineer that likes literature and linguistics and all that kind of stuff. So to me, and, you know, maybe civil engineers are going to tweet at me, you don't know anything. Can you explain to me what's the difference between civil and structural? Because I I confuse them sometimes. I'm, I'm not sure. I'll try my best and I... I hope the structural engineers don't tweet at me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they will They will anyway, so, you know. Basically, structural engineering is the design of structural systems, the design of concrete, steel, timber, the systems that hold homes, hold buildings up, structural design and bridges. It's that aspect of design that focuses on the structure that you're designing. Civil engineer, it's a little bit more broad of a field. You know, there's a school of thought that says the structural engineering falls under civil, but civil engineers are looking at mass transportation, utilities, pavement, uh, you name it, retaining walls, land development, water resources, traffic engineering. There's a number of things that you can touch under civil engineering. And so it's very common for you to have a bachelor's in civil engineering, but be working at a transportation company or work at a water resources company. Civil engineering is the major field, per se. Do you remember your, your first job out of college? How do you get to it? I was actually lucky that when I was at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, I actually had a job at a structural firm while I was in my last year and a half working doing uh, structural timber design. Oh, while studying? While I was studying. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was very... You like pain, right? <laughs> Looks <laughs> like it. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I love to do. <laughs> but 
that was my first job in structural, and I got quite a bit of experience there. But eventually, when I graduated, it was time to leave San Luis Obispo. And so that's when I thought I, I was going to go back to L.A., but the job offer, the attractive job offer, was actually for a company here in the Bay Area, RJ mm. and Associates out of Pleasanton. And so it's interesting because I was sitting at the crossroads of, I really want to do structural engineering, but this company is offering me a job as a civil engineer doing land development. I don't know what the state is now, but land development, at least in, when I was in school, was not a, a subject that gets taught. And so, I mean, I read the types of projects that the company works on. And so I like, well, let me try it. And so it's interesting because just like I moved to the Bay Area and let me try the Bay Area for a year, I also said, let me try land development for a year. And here I am 14 years later. So... <laughs> So be mindful of those. Mm, let me try for a year or two decisions because you might just become a master in that particular craft. Right. And I think all of us get exposed to certain subjects while we're in school, right? But obviously school doesn't cover everything. And there are things out there that you don't know that are really cool. And that's what I found in land development. I literally fell in love with it. Now, whenever there's an opportunity to do some structural design, to the extent that my license allows me to do, <laughs> I will go after it or try to try to get involved with it. But for the most part, we're doing land development. So, so when, when you talk about land development and, you know, all the process and all the things that happen into it, you've done some community planning. Where do you even start to plan a community? That to me, it's a way over my head. So I don't I, would, I wouldn't even know where to start. Well, it depends on where you are in the process. I mean, if you have a, let's call it a blank slate, meaning just the land, you have the land out there already. First of all, there's a landowner or landowners that have a vision for what they want to build. But in the case of a community, you have to go through an entitlement process, basically do your due diligence, do a lot of investigations, investigation of the land, do environmental reports, historical analysis watershed analysis. Watershed, it's, it's understanding how water flows through the site. You go through a number of studies that will begin to tell you where it makes sense to build. I don't even know where to start because I, I'm, you know, I'm come from an, my ignorance of I'm an electronics engineer. Basically, all the circuits and stuff that I work on are things that I, I'm grabbing my phone now. Is things that I can hold in my hand. So when I actually go to a new community or a city and I see the construction guys going at it, putting everything together. I'm like, wait a second. This community, this house, these buildings were in somebody's mind. And they somehow figure out a process of putting this thing in a blueprint and communicating it throughout that army of structural engineers and civil engineers and watershed engineers right. and make a freaking building. So that blows my mind because how do you even start that? How do you make those people fall in line? And it's, it's yeah, so and, and I think it goes back to what I was saying. It's like there has to be a vision, right? A vision of the landowner, whether the landowner is a single person or mm -hmm. a landowner is a com an overall community. It can be the citizens of San Francisco wanting a new library building, right? Or it can be a single landowner that owns a large scale of mm -hmm. land west of Austin, Texas, where he wants to build a new community. And these are specific examples that I'm thinking about. But there's a number of studies. Of um, there's a geotechnical engineer that goes and does surveys of the soil. What type of soil is there? Can the soil infiltrate water? The properties of the soil are going to tell you what kind of structure, what kind of foundation is going to get built. There's a an environmental assessment 
reports, there's a traffic engineer that will come and do a traffic analysis. And you want to build a 1,400-home community with two schools and a hotel, and this is the approximate layout of the roadways and streets. Well, this is the traffic mitigation that you need to do. So every, it's all these layers of studies that begin to tell you, you know what, it makes sense to orient this community to build homes in this part of the topography or the hotel component of this project is going to work best from the value of the hotel to have these amazing views over a river or a mountain range and so on. And so all those steps go through the process. And so you go through, those are the initial studies that begin to inform you as to where that goes, right? And these days you're using software like GIS that allows you to put layer upon layer of information. And so you might have a property that's, say, 1,000 acres. And by the way, you can put other layers like protect the flora and the fauna, historic trees that are there, and so on. Yeah, if it's a protected um, a burial ground or something that you yeah. you, you can't touch. Right. Okay. Begins to tell you, okay, here is of the 1,000 acres you can build them and you get this value out of these 300 acres because the other 700 acres are is what the community will enjoy. That's awesome. So it sounds like there's a lot of collaboration, a lot of building consensus. Could you tell me what's your current title and where do you work? What's your role? So I'm a project manager at Sherwood Design Engineers. We are a civil engineering land development company, but our focus is to bring sustainability, low-impact design to the projects that we're working on. So finding ways to reduce the impact of that project. And that can be whether something as small as calling in the specifications a material that's locally sourced, like say this pipe is manufactured in the Bay Area and the project is in the Bay Area. So it's a local product that's not going to have a large carbon footprint in the transportation of it to the site. Or it can be something larger where you're looking at the actual footprint of the project and reducing literally that the footprint. How do I create the less impact? but still be able to meet the vision of the owner, the vision of the architect. And so that's our take on projects. So you, you spoke a little bit in the beginning about that difference between design and construction. So when you say uh, that you are a project manager, where do you fall? Is it in the design or the construction? Sure, we design engineers. We're a design company. We do provide construction administration support services, meaning that once a project is bid by a contractor, the construction is awarded to a contractor. And during the construction process, a number of questions will come up, whether it's something that they uncovered or something that wasn't clear in the drawings or additional support that they need. That's where we provide our construction administration support services. So in terms of where I land, I'm on, I'm on the design side. So can you walk me through how does that handoff look like? Because in my mind, I'm picturing a designer that it's in a nice office with air conditioning, probably wearing a tie or not, you know, in front of his or hers CAD software designing stuff, and then just click sending an email over to the construction engineer that then needs to go to the field and allocate materials, do scheduling, you know, the executing that design, if you will. Can you walk me through that handoff? What does that really look like? There's actually a few more steps in terms of we as the designers, you know, go through a process of, like you were saying earlier, a lot of collaboration between the different design disciplines, whether it's an architect, a landscape architect, an electrical engineer, a plumbing engineer, 
civil engineer, all these disciplines coming together and designing the project and walking that, developing the set of drawings, this set of construction documents that, by the way, are legal documents that get signed and stamped by every discipline. And then they get run through the city process to get the applicable permits. Once the drawings have the permits, if it's a public project, it will go through an official bid process where all the contractors have an opportunity to go and bid the project. Or if it's a private project, the owner might put it out for a contractor to bid or he already has his contractor in mind. So once the contract for construction is awarded, the construction company takes it from there. But to describe what the handoff process is, there's actually, once the contract is awarded, there's a, it's what's called a pre-construction meeting. A pre-construction meeting basically has the designers and the builders at the same table. And we literally laid the drawings out and say, this is the general approach. And basically every discipline has an opportunity to say, these are the things that we're going to be tracking with. In addition to the construction documents, there's a set of specifications that are written that describe what each product, each material is to be used on site. Thoroughly, the contractor takes it from there with all their building experience and begins the construction process. Somewhere in there, the contractor has either started or will start what's called a mobilization process. Mobilization refers to the actual moving of construction equipment into the site to begin the process. Those are the trucks going at midnight by my house. Exactly. So they can start constructing at 6 a.m. or 5.30. Yeah. Now I understand them. Thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that picture. I'm picturing this uh, this table, this uh, pre-construction meeting between the designers and the construction or the contractors. And I don't know why I'm picturing a very tense room. Can you tell me a bit about that relationship between designers and contractors? How does that relationship look like? You know, I've been on pre-construction meetings where there's literally somewhere between 30 and 40 people. Oh my God, how do you run that meeting? How do you, exactly, how do you <laughs> run that meeting, right? And you have the designers that have all the experience in terms of the building code, in terms of the permitting process with the city, designers that understand why is it that we design things a certain way. And then you have the contractors that have all their building experience. They have years and years of doing mm -hmm. construction of these systems. And so my, my personal take is on um, the projects that I worked on, it's uh, all about collaboration. It's all about communication. Keep in mind that before the pre-construction meeting, the contractor has received the drawings. So just like the designer will come with a list of things that we're going to be tracking with. The contractor also has the opportunity to come in with questions and say, you know, we noticed you're calling for this type of installation. We had questions about this process. We might be able to do it more efficiently with this approach. It's an opportunity to come together and determine what's best for the project. But, you know, in the background of things, there is that funny tension between designers and contractors. But I think, you know, it all goes back to communication. I've been lucky that I've been trained by some very knowledgeable designers, some very knowledgeable civil engineers. And so I've been exposed to that really good training that says, you know, school only taught you so much, but the, most of the experience is going to come from being on the job. And there's guys out there that don't have college degrees, that don't have formal education, but they've been building retaining walls all their life. And so they will tell you, they can design and build a retaining wall. You're just providing the construction documents with a permit from the city to basically prove what they're going to build. You have to be open to what the builder has to share in terms of their experience. There has to be a mutual respect. Yeah, it's all about respect. Right. And, and knowing that you may have your master's from whatever you went to college, but that person that has been doing this job for 30 years 
knows more than you. And and we actually, uh, I was discussing that with uh, in another podcast with a production manager from Tesla. Sure, she has a master's degree in engineering management, but you know when she's in the production floor, she has to talk and collaborate with people that have been using the same tool for 10 years. So, okay, here you are the subject matter expert. I'm just helping you troubleshoot to make sure that my line keeps producing what it needs to do. So do you have a favorite project or one that you are the proudest of that you can think of? Because I know you worked in the U.S., in the Middle East, in Latin America, in a lot of places. Do you have a favorite project in your mind that you can share with us? I think I've been lucky to work on a quite a big number of projects, but I think probably my favorite, it's called the Lower Sprawl Redevelopment Project that was at UC Berkeley. And the reason why it's my favorite is because it was my first large scale project in terms of bringing all the aspects of civil engineering together. There was structural components, there was utilities. Mm -hmm. For those of you from uh, that went to Cal, Lower Sprawl, is the center of activity on campus. It's surrounded by four buildings, the house, uh, club offices, Celebrate Hall, which is the auditorium, the concerts take place. So hundreds of people use that space. Use that space. And so there's this historical component to lower sprawl, right? There's a lot of human energy that's gone into that place over the years. But here's this plaza that's, we're gonna do a remake of the plaza but by the way, there's Eshelman Hall, which we're going to completely tear it down and literally install a new building. And at the same time, the vision of the project is actually, is, is actually de- was actually developed by the students in terms of setting the performa of what they want to see. So one of the big aspects for them was uh, looking at sustainability. What's the water story? Let's go back in time and see how, before UC Berkeley was there, how did water flow through the site? And so we begin to put those layers together, uh, this historical context of what it was and what it is now. And wouldn't it be cool if we, whenever it rains, collect our stormwater from the plaza and from the roofs of the new building, send it to a 30,000-gallon tank, run it to a treatment train, and then let's pump that water back into the new building to flush toilets. In the end, the math adds up to 400,000 gallons of water savings. Sounds like Berkeley. <laughs> but, like I, a, but, but, yeah. the, but that's the cool thing on the sustainability story, right? It's it's four thousand gallons of water that one the university is not paying for anymore, mm-hmm. and two, you're reducing the carbon footprint of the university because that's less water that they're pulling from the larger water reservoir. And this is California. I mean, we're in a drought. I know the governor said that we're not, but I like to think that we still are, and that water is precious, and that we should be thankful for what we got right. and just use as little as we can get by. So no, that's impressive. No, no, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm a strong believer that you can learn something new from anyone you meet. That is why every month I compile all the key learnings from this podcast and experience and summarize them in my monthly newsletter. I curate the resources we talk about key learnings, books I'm currently reading, and give you recommendations on how to become a better Latino professional. You can sign up following the show notes or at latinoswhotech.com. Thank you. So you have some international experience. I've noticed that you very proudly wear it. So tell me about some of the places you've worked. 
there's a couple of projects that I've worked that one I cannot disclose. No, of course, yeah. of course. Uh, just public stuff that... Right. But one that actually recently happened, we actually got approached because of our water expertise uh, developer in Baja, California. It's looking for opportunities of developing the land that he owns for hotels. And so he currently has a hotel on site. You can imagine building a series of hotels in the Baja Desert, where's wow. the water? So there's a number of studies that have been done prior to us getting there that there might be opportunity for extracting water, groundwater. In the end, we're basically approached to find the water on site. And we determined that the best approach is to do desalination, which is what they're doing already for the existing hotel. But, you know, they're having challenges on the level of salinity of the water that they're pulling out. And so there's actually a process involved with desalination. If you can imagine, or if you can think about water getting pulled, what we call this raw water that gets pulled with salt, well... Part of the sanation process is literally that, taking the salt out and sending the good water to be used. And so one of the byproducts, it's this brine, this salted brine that you have to inject that back into the ground. Well, if you're not careful, if the injection wells can contaminate the places that you're pulling water from. So you have to be strategic. You have to understand how the different layers underground are working. That underground strata of soils, where the bedrock is, basically land formations underground to better inform where to put that briny mixture back in. And there's environmental concerns as well, because you have to put it back in a place where it's not going to create an environmental issue. So I'm curious, I have a friend that he's a chef. And whenever we go out to eat, I always like to ask him, hey, man, are you always judging the food when we eat at the other restaurant? And he will say no, that he enjoys eating anything. But a little part of me thinks that hey, maybe you're not being fully honest with me. Maybe you're actually looking at the way they actually cut the fries or grill the meat and stuff like that. So I'm curious to see if you do something similar with buildings or bridges or roads. Are you always on looking around you? And I do. It's kind of funny. I mentioned my love for structural engineering, so I'll be paying attention at the rocker connections that hold a bridge. You know, when I'm stuck in traffic and I'm looking at the overpass, I'm looking at the beams. <laughs> Say, oh, there's a pin connection, there's a rigid connection. Or if I'm in a hotel at Irvine, California, pull tap water and I'm looking at the water. We're in the Bay Area, which, by the way, has the best water in California. Yes, Bay Area. <laughs> we got something good. But yes, I'm judging the flavor of the water. I'm judging the structural connections. I'm Jimmy Galvez, civil engineer, water critic. <laughs> water critic. <laughs> That sounds like torture, but it also sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like you love what you do. I love what and, I do. And you really care about what you do. So can we talk a bit about project management? And how do we get those 300 people in line so they can build my damn building? Can you tell me about some of the challenges of project management? Because I'll be completely transparent. I've, I've managed teams of five to 10 people. Or tiger forces and you know tiger teams, task forces, things of that nature. Things of, okay, we need to ship this product or ship this project. We got four weeks. Okay, I'm on it. But sounds like the construction projects that you work on are way longer than that. So can you tell me about the challenges that you face as a project manager? Well, the projects that I work on these days, they vary from anything as short as six months. Or, for example, I'm finishing up work. We're going to reach what's called substantial completion of the Masconi expansion project in downtown San Francisco. This is the sixth year that I've been working on. <laughs> year number six. 
<laughs> so you can imagine there's different durations of the projects, right? In the everyday of project management, when you're starting a project, you're lining up the obligations that you set forth in a contract in terms of what you are going to deliver for that fee, and you begin to allocate resources, teams of engineers, mm -hmm. teams of experts that are going to allow you to reach those deliverables for the project. And so you're doing, you know, on the everyday, you're, you're looking at resources on the project. You're looking at teams of people that are going to get you from point A to point B to complete that project. So what happens when we're late? What happens when the person that was supposed to bring the concrete or the steel bars or anything, they're late one week and it cascades throughout my roadmap. What happens? So now you're getting into scheduling, right? So part of that scheduling is you as the project manager literally laying out a roadmap and build contingency into your plan of attack. So whether that is actually happens in the construction side or even happens for us in the design, right? We might be waiting on the decision to come from the city on their approval of how we're going to approach. And we were supposed to get the decision two weeks ago, but we haven't received anything, right? And so you have to build contingency. And again, it goes back to communication. There's this constant flow of information between you, the project manager, and your client and your owner that basically saying, we are going to guide you through this process. And by the way, we build contingency into the plan of attack to get you from point A to point B. Delays will happen, but you know, when we start looking at schedules, you start looking at critical paths to get you. So you, as the project manager, you're not only looking at what's going to happen this week, you're looking at two months out, three months out, especially for the larger duration projects. Or you know that 25% of the project has to be completed this month. So you move resources. You prioritize. and Right. That's awesome. Especially because the building contingency part. So yeah, so it happens in this side of the table too. Sometimes uh, you know, a customer asks me for a deliverable and I know I can do it in two weeks, but I always tell the customer that I'll, I'll give it to you in three because stuff happens. And you're not my only customer. I got 10 more people banging on my door. So building that contingency, that's key. So you, you've told me about the, the project manager, what do you do, but what does a star project manager need to bring to the table? What does a young professional that want to be a project manager in your area need to bring to the table, need to be, needs to be prepared to, to do? I put a lot of focus on communication, not only your written, but spoken communication. As a civil engineering designer, it is expected that you obviously know your engineering and you know how to do the calculations, you know the software to use for modeling certain systems. But you have to remember that you have to translate that to a non-engineer. You have to translate the design of your water system to a developer, to a city official, to maybe a city council member. You have to be able to communicate the delivery of these engineering systems to all these other stakeholders. So a lot of communication. What I find is also very valuable is a lot of interpersonal skills, be able to interact with a number of people. Because as a project manager, you're going to be working with teams. In some projects, I'll be managing a project where I'll have, whether it's my boss or a company principal, someone that's above me working under me because of his expertise in sewer systems or her expertise in soils and so on, right? So as a project manager, I'm bringing all those experts together, again, to get us from point A to point B. And so a lot of organization skills are very valuable. There's a lot of planning. There's this ability to 
not just plan steps one through 10 to get there, but as I was saying earlier, literally looking two weeks ahead of time. And, you know, and every now and then you get the curveball of, I have my water resources person scheduled to develop this part of the project, but now they want to take vacation or we overlooked the fact that she or he wanted to take vacation at the end of November. What do we do, right? And so you start planning ahead with moving timeline schedules around to accommodate some of these things. So it sounds like playing chess, that you have to, not only the first play, but you have to be able to look at 40, 50 uh, steps ahead. By the way, everything I've been mentioning so far is internal to your civil engineering design team. In most projects, you're working with a number of other companies. I counted one project that were... 15 companies involved. And so the same way that you interact with your internal team members, you're interacting with fellow project managers from each of those companies. And so attending meetings, planning ahead with those individuals as well. So what does your inbox look like? <laughs> Don't look at it now. Don't look at it now. Look We're doing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's, that's, um... there's a lot of email traffic. And it's interesting because we've talked about this in actually other SHEP events or other organization events that email is probably the worst method of communication. I hate it with a passion. But yet it's the accepted method of how information flows every day. Again, putting an emphasis on communication, I will send you an email, but I'll follow it up with a phone call. Hey, I want to make sure that when you get a chance to review this email, let's set up a time to talk about the bullet points that I listed in my email. Or if there's additional information that you need in order for us to converge on the end product, let's discuss it. These days, video conferencing is so easy, right? So if you're working on a multidisciplinary team with team members in different time zones, don't just pick up the phone call, but let's set up a video conference. But yet email is this constant thing, constant flow of information. That's where Slack saves the day. Again, if you're working with 15 companies and you have to find that common denominator. I'm a huge fan of phone calls because of that, because we can just work the issue out because right. we're having that conversation. And let's be honest, also, we, we live in a multicultural environment. And in my team, I may have people from India, China, Russia, Lithuania, and we all have our different nuances in how we like to work. And email cannot convey tone. So I would rather give you a 20-minute phone call than a 50-email thread. I think there's more value in those 15, 20 minutes than in any emails that you send. Yeah, my rule of thought is if, if an email is taking more than two or three sentences, it probably warrants a conference call. If an email thread is going more than four or five emails back and forth, it probably warrants an in-person meeting. That's sort of my personal rule of thumb oh, or my great. preference. That's great. But, you know, every now and then you get into these situations where the last email is touching on something completely different than what the original email was. And that's probably one of my pet peeves, jumping yeah. subject lines, subjects. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell me a bit more about meetings and how do you like to run meetings? It runs back to organization as a project manager, right? And so you have to be organized to literally understand who are the stakeholders that are going to be attending the meeting based on the stakeholders and what your goal is to get out of that meeting. You lay out an agenda that starts with the basics from introduction to laying out the number of things that you want to touch on. I actually literally before coming here, I sent an agenda for a meeting that I have tomorrow. And the agenda literally states introductions, number of topics, that are relevant to the conversation that we need to have. And then at the bottom, there's a list of things that we want to make sure that we hit on, that we want resolution on. And so that's basically sets the tone. And then I sent that agenda today, 
for our meeting that's tomorrow so people have a chance to review that agenda and they can prep themselves. By the way, I had sent a draft agenda about two weeks ago to give them a heads up. These are the topics that we're thinking about touching on at the meeting. And then I sent the final agenda earlier today. And then tomorrow I'll show up. We'll have the ability to show the agenda on the screen, but I'll also, it's a beautiful thing about technology, right? That it's awesome when it works, but every now and then you get the projector that doesn't (laughs) project or the computer that doesn't want to turn on. So always come with a backup plan. And literally I'm bringing hard copies of the agenda. I have all my exhibits and and documents that I want to flash in the computer screen uh, electronically, but I also have hard copies of each of those documents in case... You never know. You never know. You never know. A good engineer always brings a backup. You'd be amazed how many meetings I've had with senior people, managers, directors, and, uh, hey, so what's the purpose of this meeting? Oh, wait, we're just hanging out, talking? And that's a rule of thumb that I have as well. I'm happy to give you time in my calendar. I'm happy to give you an hour, half an hour, but please send an agenda. Now, what do we want to talk about? Is this a working meeting? How can I prepare best for this? Because we're all super busy. So we need to prioritize how we spend that time. That's the, uh, the method to that madness in terms of laying out the groundwork in terms of the number of things we want to touch on. And then literally on the day of the actual meeting, literally, whether you flash the agenda or you pass it out as hard copies, If you're the one leading the meeting, stick to the agenda and literally start going item by item. And you're going to get that individual that wants to talk about, oh, in addition, let's talk about something else. No, let's let's put that in the, you know, one technique that I've heard is let's put that in the parking lot to the end of the meeting. If we have time or if not, we'll set up a follow up. But let's stick to the original plan because this is what everybody prepared to. No, but I want to talk about, I gave you one week to have topics to the agenda. Happy to discuss it at a follow-up at a later time. But yeah, that verbal judo, that's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, yeah. Yeah, they don't teach you that in engineering school. No, they don't, unfortunately. Uh, and that's why I emphasize communication, right? Because we as engineers, we're trained to do the math, the science, the calculations, the modeling. We become really good at doing all those aspects that have to do with the calculation portion. But there's not that many programs out there that, or at least when I went to school, that mm-hmm. would teach you this communication yeah, the soft skills. Soft skills, right. So that becomes very crucial. And I think this is a great segue into SHEP, the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, because I find that the foundation of all the, the soft skills that I use uh, in my day-to-day at Intel and through any project that I, that I embark on, I probably got it from going to a SHEP workshop at the national conference or a regional conference or at my school back home in Florida? You know, what is SHEP for you? For me, it was it has been a big support network. My father started as a teenager, as a butcher, and that's what he did all his life. And my mom, a homemaker, neither of them having a college education. And so I was looking for that support system of, here I am the first member of my family to get a college education, but who do I turn for questions, right? And so I remember a great friend of mine, she said, you should check out Shep. It was like in my first quarter at Cal Poly. And I went to the Shep meeting. I go, oh, this is where all the Latino people are hanging out at. It's <laughs> my people. My people. <laughs> it was interesting and inspiring because I thought I was the only one in my situation. But yet my story replicated itself of being a number of people that are just their first time in college or the first person in their family to attend college, right? And so it became this 
brotherhood, sisterhood network of people that are going through the same struggle as you are. I, I like to think of it as a, as a support network, too, but also almost like a tribe. Because when I'm around people that are in SHEP, I don't need to explain myself or the way I talk or the decisions that I've made. Or, Hugo, why do you want to use vacation time to go to this conference in the Midwest? Because I have to. I heard this, uh, this keynote once that Shep used to be a place that I would go to. But now Shep is where I come from. That's very cool. And, and that stuck with me. Uh, because I feel that everything about soft skills and how to communicate my ideas and how to basically network, do that part of the engineering that is not the hardcore engineering, the part that is the, the people skills. I learned it at Shep through some way. Uh, my mentors, mentees, bunch of friends, yourself. Absolutely. I mean, when I was mentioning how I came to the U.S. when I was 10 years old and you know, I had to push myself to learn English as a second language, kids at that age are cruel and, and we get bullied because of our accent. And so I grew very sensitive to my accent. And so in a span of six months, I taught myself English, obviously with the backing of fifth grade and elementary school, right? But I learned English, but I've always been a shy person. I wanted to break out of that. I needed to break out of that because I have this vision of leading these big projects, these big civil engineering projects. I can't do that if I'm very quiet, right? And so Shep gave me the opportunity to first network with members of the tribe, literally one-on-one -on -one and practice my pitch, practice my communication one-on-one. -on -one. But then I'm going to lead teams. So the one way I can grow is by putting myself in uncomfortable situations. So how does a shy person become uncomfortable so that they can learn to speak in front of others? Let me run for vice president or let me run for president <laughs> of the organization. I mean, other than obviously I, I love to get back because of the reasons I mentioned earlier, that was my ulterior motive as well. Let me teach myself to speak not only one-on-one -on -one to people, let me speak to a group of 200 people or 10 people. And literally, Shep gave me that opportunity. I think, you know, going to what somebody said is that Shep creates this safe space where you can practice these skills. If I mess up in a meeting or if I mess up in something at work, my company could be laid off from the project. But if I mess up at a Shep event, yeah, people might talk, but it's not the end of the world. Right. <laughs> so so it, it creates this safe space for you to practice your communication, your project mm -hmm. management skills, because you're literally managing an event. You're managing other groups of people, teams of people that are going to come together for a greater goal. And it's okay to make mistakes and regroup, learn from them and execute again. Long, long time ago, I used to say... Uh, Defeat is not an option or mistakes are not an option, but that is so old school because some of the greatest people out there, almost the most influential, those everyday iconic people that we see on leading stem mm -hmm. fields, right? They've made mistakes. Yeah. I make mistakes. We all make mistakes every day. And so mm -hmm. it's just, it's less about the mistakes. It's more about how you get up from those mistakes and regroup yourself and let's go at it again. Yeah, people love to share the story of uh, Thomas Edison, how he tried a thousand and fifty different carbon filaments for the light bulb right. before he found the right one that could make the actual light bulb, that the first prototype that, you know, there's still one of them that's still on 120 years later. So, you know, he did a lot of work on that, you know, in the, his free time when he was not stealing stuff from Tesla. But, but that's a different story, you know, for a different <laughs> podcast. Thing. 
Yeah, I'm a double E man. Team Tesla. So tell me about the um, being a, a chef chapter president. Where was this? How do you get to it? How long were you president for? You know, I was active as a chef member and when I was in college, when I was at Cal Poly, so I spoke. But when I came to the Bay Area, it's kind of interesting because the San Francisco chapter had been very active. But I, me not knowing the Bay Area, I said, well, let me look up the chef chapter. And uh, sure enough, I went to the first chef meeting of the San Francisco professional chapter. And um, I was an active member for the first couple of years. And somewhere in there, as I was focusing on my career, I took a little break and pulled back a little bit from Shep. And somewhere around 2010, I came back and the chapter was going through some challenges. Every chapter goes through these things, these, these up and downs. Right. And maybe just for the benefit of the audience that doesn't know Shep, um, these are all essentially volunteers. So these are professionals that volunteer their, their free time to do outreach events for high school, college students, and young professionals, and they do workshops on things like uh, networking, financial planning, and even engineering field trips. So I remember going to the, the Bay Bridge with the San Francisco chapter and, you know, doing cool things like that, too. So these are people volunteering their time. So. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, to clarify, these, these are people that have their day job as an engineer and on top of their, every, their everyday day job, they're looking to give back by organizing themselves into this chapter, right? But I remember coming back in, in 2010 and they go, this was not the active chapter when I first got involved. Let me get a little bit more involved, where a little bit more involved resulted in me becoming the vice president of the chapter. <laughs> go big, go home. <laughs> but I think it has to be something about something about who you are as a person, right? Because you have this vision about what things are, what things should be, but you also have to be part of the solution, I feel, right? And so somehow if there's something that you expect, your expectations have to be met with your contribution somehow. Eventually that vice president turned into me being president for two or three years. It was some great years because we got an opportunity to touch so many lives. The event at the Exploratorium is happening mm, this Sunday. This yeah. Sunday, right? Yeah. It's probably, this episode is going to come out after the fact, right. but it's something that Shep San Francisco Bay Area always does every year. And it's actually going to be my, my third time in the panel. It's uh, awesome. I was there with you my, my first year. Yeah, you were I remember. In the panel. I remember. We were there together. But the reason I mentioned the Exploratorium event is because I remember one of those years when we were organizing it, you know, the day of the event starts and you're trying to make sure that everything is going as, as smoothly as possible mm -hmm. as you planned it as a project manager. You build some contingency in your plan. <laughs> yeah, the, the contingency there is you need 20 volunteers. Well, let's go after 30 volunteers. Because then people are going to get sick, quote unquote, <laughs> Sunday morning. But the reason I mentioned this story is because I remember being in the middle of the event and one of my fellow officers, she comes to me and says, Jimmy, Jimmy, look at this lady. She, now keep in mind, the Exploratorium is in San Francisco, California. And my fellow officer says, look, meet, meet this lady. She basically has understood the importance of exposing her two kids to this event. And so she's a single mother of two kids and brought her kids from San Jose, California, to San Francisco, all through public transportation. It was a really cool story, I thought. It's those lives that we want to touch. Can I tell you my, my Shep story? Absolutely. I grew up in Florida. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and I was part of the 
SHEP, University of Central Florida chapter. And we would do outreach like any other chapter. We would go to the middle schools and high schools and do demonstrations for the students. So I'm a double E, and I was actually building um, audio amplifier. And I actually showed the, these middle school students, hey, this is how it works, and these are the parts. And then I would actually hook it up and showing them how with a $10 amplifier from plus some components, resistors, and uh, some capacitors from Shack, we could play music back. And this was back in the day when you know, I had an iPod Touch, and I could actually hook it up to the thing. And, you know, we're listening to some salsa in the Saturday morning and the students are, wow, it's working. And there was this student, uh, his name is Gonzalo Sauri and he's Peruvian. And he actually, he was very outspoken during the demo. And he's a, he's a student and he was very active and asking, hey, so how does this work? How does that work? And, and he, after the, the presentation, we're all taking a picture and we usually take a picture with the students and then the volunteers would take another picture. And Gonzalo was with us the whole time. He wants to take the picture with us. And then he says, oh, there's music. Maybe we should dance. So there was an impromptu salsa class <laughs> in the outreach event. So that was great. Uh, and I, for some reason or other, I started doing, I started getting more focused in school. So I didn't do outreach to that particular middle school for, for a while. Fast forward six years to 2016, and it's the SHEP National Conference. And I'm actually at the Intel booth representing my company. And I see this young man with a suit and tie, and he says, hello. Hello, Hugo. Do you remember me? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't. uh, Do we have friends in common? Where do you go to school? Oh, I went to UCF. Oh, awesome. That's great. And my name is Gonzalo. You came to my middle school class a couple years back. And you gave us a great workshop. And, oh, wow, that's awesome, man. That's, that's fantastic that you remember. So what do you do now? Well, I'm actually the president of the Shep chapter of the university. That's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> so not only he went into engineering, uh, he also became a leader in the chapter. Again, that six-year feedback, I mean, I can't tell you how it felt. You know, I was walking in the clouds for the rest of the day. Uh, when we took a selfie, and I actually have uh, the two pictures, so I'll make sure to look them up and put them in the show notes too, because that idea of giving back, and again, this was a lucky coincidence that Gonzalo happened to be in the same conference, but how many people that we don't find out go and do amazing things in engineering and science? So I think of the Gonzalos that we actually inspire to go into STEM. So I always think of him whenever I do an outreach event and I wonder, huh, these uh, students that we're going to see on the Sunday event in the Exploratorium, I wonder what they're going to build. Some of them are probably going to go to Mars. It's the next innovation, the, the next innovative product, right? The next, we're always, as, as engineers and scientists, we're always working towards providing a greater good to society. And so it's really inspiring to see those young engineers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be the next uh, leader. Jimmy, I think that we touch on everything that I wanted to cover. Is there anything that you would like to add to this audience of young professionals and Latinos in STEM that listen to us? 
you never know where your career is going to take you, right? And as you're developing your career, you're adding experience to everything that you're doing, right? And, and hopefully that sets you up for the next stage of where you want to go. Uh, you know, we were just talking about Shep in San Francisco and how I was looking for that opportunity to help me out of my shy shell and trying to practice my people's skills, right? And so, but, you know, as uh, my company had gave me the opportunity to move to Houston about three years ago. And sure enough, let me find the Houston Ship Chapter. And I found myself in a place where I feel very comfortable speaking in public, but my reason for being a ship president has shifted into something else. That something else was... I want to continue to give back, but now that I'm very comfortable as a, in speaking in public and networking and leading groups of people, my focus is now mentorship. I want to mentor young professionals. I want to mentor young fellow chapter leaders so that they become the future president of the Shep Houston chapter. And uh, just like we did in San Francisco, we came together in one chapter of the year. And going back to those cool stories, right? You don't, you never know where your career is going to take you, right? And so here I am a couple of years into being in Houston and uh, I get a message on Facebook Messenger from an old friend. And she says, I don't know if you remember me, but uh, I wanted to say thank you. I go, great to talk to you and everything, right? We start having a conversation. But I go, why did you want to say thank you? And she said, because I don't know if you remember, but we met when we were, in, when you were in the Bay Area, I was a student at San Francisco State University. And now I know that you're in Houston, but I'm now working in Dallas, Texas. And your help was very key in me starting my career. It was interesting, right? Two people that were at some point in the Bay Area now find themselves both in two different cities of Texas. But yet she's starting her career with an energy company. And I'm working for my company in, in a different city. But there was that connection, right? And so those kind of stories kind of just stick to you because mm -hmm. they catch you off guard, but in a good way. And they, they, they make it worth it. The same thing happens to me when, when, I, when I put out this content. People reach out and people say, hey, Hugo, thank you so much for giving us this. And to me, it's... And sometimes I feel that I'm a bit selfish because I'm taking some of your time to learn about your profession and how do you get there and the tips that you can give from your experience. So I figure, hey, we're meeting for coffee anyway. How about we make a podcast and we give back? So we complete that feedback loop. It's not only me finding out and then doing a workshop. Let's make this the stage where we're doing the workshop. We as individuals should and should always strive to be open-minded, right? And that we're constantly learning. And so I am lucky to sit here with extensive experience, both in my career and in SHEP and other organizations that I'm a part of. I'm constantly looking for ways to learn, and I want to learn from others. I want to learn from yourself, think the great things you're doing. I want to learn from our listeners, right? That you got some young engineers that are coming with better, different ways of doing things. And so, you know, I don't know what the next set of technology is going to be or the, the most efficient way of communicating will be 10 years from now. But I'm constantly looking to learn and, and learning doesn't have to be from people your age, can be from younger people, can be from obviously older, more experienced people. So there's this constant sharing of information that it might seem as selfish, but yeah, you have an opportunity to interact with one another and sharing that 
flow of information between people. Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be part of this. So thank you so much for having me. You're welcome anytime. Thank you.